I'm Lee Sanger Golden, and you're listening to me talk on the internet. I'm proud to announce that as part of our Inside Jobs series of conspiracy theory investigations, I'm sorry, conspiracy fact investigations, we're going to be going back into one of the most important cases that I've ever researched in my time, and that is the assassination of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. So let's go ahead and start our series with what I'd like to call Assassination 101. John Fitzgerald Kennedy was perhaps America's most charismatic president. He entered the highest office of the land at the dawn of a new decade in a time of great hope, promise, and prosperity. He was an advocate of many forward-reaching causes, ranging from civil rights to nuclear non-proliferation. During some of the greatest crises of the Cold War, President Kennedy relied on his intellect rather than brute strength to broker for peace. In his short tenure as commander-in-chief, President Kennedy avoided war with Cuba, Vietnam, and the Soviet Union. His cool and compassionate intellect had the great power of putting out the flames of many hotter heads. Kennedy was also a pioneer in a golden age of television, using his good looks and sharp wit to win voters through the airwaves. The importance that television plays in electoral politics to this day is a direct legacy of President Kennedy's panache. A beautiful and urbane first lady on his arm and two charming children at his feet, President Kennedy's first family came to represent all that Americans could accomplish in the newer and freer 1960s. Of course, not everyone appreciated President Kennedy or his policies. He had enemies on all sides, and of all sizes, foreign, domestic, federal, state, and private. There was the usual crowd of wealthy right-wing industrialists who wanted to use their money and influence to hinder the more progressive presidents and the typical militant segregationists filled with bile and hatred. But there were also pro-Castro Cubans, anti-Castro Cubans, mobsters, and KGB operatives who were all dying for a shot at Kennedy. Within the United States itself, it is said Kennedy had enemies within the FBI, the CIA, the Federal Reserve, and some even say the armed forces, of which he was the commander-in-chief. On the afternoon of November 22, 1963, President Kennedy cruised Dallas, Texas in an open-top limousine as part of a whirlwind goodwill publicity tour which took the president through the major cities in the state of Texas. The rationale behind the risky trip was highly political. Electoral support in Texas had been crucial to his narrow victory against Richard Nixon in the presidential election of 1960. JFK was pulling out all the stops to keep Texas in his column in 64. He wanted to be seen out in the open, among the people, using his tremendous charisma to win voters over one crowd at a time. He even convinced his charming wife, the elegant but inauspicious First Lady Jacqueline Jackie Kennedy, to join him on the trip. She had not campaigned with her husband since the loss of their infant son Patrick earlier that year, and when she did appear to the public, it was generally in dark glasses. Now, knowing that Jackie might be Jack's best chance to hanging on to the presidency next November, he finally convinced her to take off her glasses and return to the people. Now, Dallas was certainly the most radically conservative stop on the president's trip, and his appearance was a bold message to his detractors. UN Ambassador Adlai Stevenson had been assaulted during his last visit to the town, and JFK's vice president, legendary Texan Lyndon Johnson, had been spit on in Dallas. Many of the president's advisors warned him to call off the trip to Dallas, 
assassination plots had already been narrowly avoided in Miami, Chicago, and Dallas was a hotbed of right-wing extremism. Kennedy went ahead with the mission to Dallas, knowing the risks. The morning of the fateful Dallas motorcade, Kennedy apparently mused about the ease with which he could be killed. All you'd have to do, the president is reported to have said, is get up in a high building with a high-powered rifle with a telescopic scope. And there's nothing anybody could do. Kennedy's motorcade was the perfect opportunity to do just what the president mentioned. The visit had been publicly planned for five months. The route of the president's motorcade was published in the local newspapers. The bubble top was removed from the presidential limousine. The Secret Service had no military or police support in the streets, and the windows to countless potential snipers' nests were left open. The final turn of the motorcade required the president's car to slow to 11 miles an hour. And although Secret Service protocol required agents to cover the vehicle in circumstances such as these, and indeed they had done so earlier in the motorcade, no agents happened to be on the president's car or even bothered to run beside it during this highly vulnerable and ultimately fatal turn. Now many allege this was because agents were allegedly ordered off the back of the limo in order to make the president seem more accessible to the people. Just what exactly this order came from has been debated for decades. But whoever gave it made a fatal error. There was a perfect time and place to do the president. It was that lazy Friday in Dallas. As the motorcade rounded the corner of Houston and Elm in Dealey Plaza at 12.30, a shot rang out. Now, most of the witnesses thought this first sound was <clears throat> from fireworks or motorcycle backfire. But Texas Governor John Connolly, seated in front of Kennedy, heard what he immediately knew was a high-powered rifle. A second shot rang out. JFK cried, my God, I am hit. As his arms came to his neck, he turns to his wife with the quizzical look. These would be the last words of one of the most eloquent orators to ever occupy the office of the presidency. John Connolly felt a sudden impact in his upper body, as if in a call in response with JFK's last words, Connolly bellowed, my God, they're going to kill us all. Another shot rang out, hitting the president directly in the head and sending a portion of the president's skull and a large amount of brain matter into the air. In between the second and third shots, Secret Service agent Clint Hill, the man in charge of protecting the first lady, leaps into action. He hops off the follow car and rushes to the back of the president's limousine. Now, just as Hill grabs a hold of the car, the third shot rings out and the president's massively traumatized head falls into the lap of the first lady, blooding her dress and the limo. Jackie pulled herself out of the car and climbed onto the trunk, reportedly to retrieve part of the president's head. Now, Hill pushed Mrs. Kennedy into the back of the car and spread himself over the back of the vehicle as driver William Greer speeds off to Parkland Hospital. And as the motorcade barreled across the freeway at breakneck speeds, Jackie desperately tried to hold together her husband's exploded head. She called out her love for him one more time. And Agent Hill pounded his fist on the trunk in sorrow. The limo arrived to Parkland Hospital within minutes, but despite the valiant efforts of the trauma doctors and staff, Kennedy's declared dead. A stunned nation is shocked and scarred for generations. What exactly happened in Dealey Plaza at 12.30, November 22, 1963, has been the subject of the most heated debate in American history. Scientists, lawmen, 
lawyers, historians, and experts in every field of thought and reason have endeavored to solve this mystery. Rumor has it that Cuban exiles, mob hitmen, Corsican assassins, French gunmen, CAA spies, and militant right-wingers were all gunning for Kennedy's motorcade that afternoon. There had been rumors of other assassination plots against him in Chicago, Miami, won by angry gangsters and other filled with enraged Cuban exiles, but whatever dark plans may have been put in motion that day by sinister forces, history and the U.S. government alleges that one man just happened to be in the right place and the right time, in the right state of mind to fire the fatal shots on November 22. Lee Harvey Oswald. Lee was a 24-year-old former Marine who had once defected, or at least attempted to defect, to the Soviet Union only to return with a Russian bride named Marina. The morning of the assassination, he left his wedding ring in a cup, put a strange package under his arm, and carpooled to his job at the Texas School Book Depository, a seven-story building situated on the last turn of the president's motorcade through downtown Dallas, a building which had a clear view of Dealey Plaza as the limousine slowed to 11 miles per hour on Elm Street. A few minutes after the assassination, Lee left the depository without his package and worked his way home. Minutes after the assassination, eyewitness Howard Brennan, who was standing across the street from the depository at the time of the shooting, tells authorities he saw a gunman who matched Oswald's description. The hunt was on for a subject matching Brennan's description. Within minutes of the shooting, the entire Dallas area was brimming with police officers, detectives, and federal authorities looking everywhere and talking to everyone. Meanwhile, Lee Oswald returned to his boarding house in the Dallas suburb of Oak Cliff, put on a coat, grabbed his revolver, and hit the streets. A few minutes later, Oak Cliff policeman J.D. Tippett, Jefferson Davis Tippett, is brutally murdered by a pedestrian with a pistol. The assailant mutters something about a poor dumb cop or poor damn cop before dashing off on foot. About the same time, Dallas police found a rifle on the sixth floor of the book depository, which was eventually traced to a man named A.G. A.J. Heidel, which was apparently an alias of Lee Harvey Oswald. Now next, Oswald was seen lurking in an Oak Cliff uh, shoe store. He left quickly, but the manager of the store, of the store sensed that Oswald was acting suspiciously and, and went out to find help. Meanwhile, Oswald slipped into a nearby Texas theater, the Texas theater, without buying a ticket, and he sat down to watch the film War is Hell. And as War is Hell is flickering in the darkness, police officers rush into the theater, and Oswald was pointed out as the suspect. Now, he struck one of the police officers, allegedly pulling out his revolver, and then Oswald is struck and subdued by the officers, and then calls out that he is not resisting arrest. The suspect is then carried out of the theater, exclaiming police brutality, by then a mob had already formed in front of the Texas theater. Oswald was endlessly interrogated by all manner of authorities, but the man in charge of questioning was Dallas homicide captain Will Fritz. Despite his reputation as a masterful interrogator, Fritz is unable to get Oswald to admit anything. Unlike other, unlike every other, in fact, presidential assassin in the history of the United States, Oswald says he didn't do it. He claimed that the real reason he was taken in was because he lived in the Soviet Union, that he was merely a patsy. <laughs> Nonetheless, Oswald is charged with the murder of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy and Officer Jefferson Davis Tippett. Whether he was guilty of these crimes or not, 
Oswald never did get a chance to tell his side of the story. As Lee Harvey Oswald was being transferred from the Dallas police station to the county jail, Dallas nightclub owner Jack Ruby thrust himself out of the crowd of reporters and shot the alleged assassin in the gut. A doctor attending Oswald's wound wounds uh, tried to wrench a confession, a confession out of the dying prisoner, but Oswald shook his head no and expired. His story silenced forever. Speculation ran wild. Lee Oswald was reportedly cavorting with pro-communists and anti-communists the summer before the assassination when he was in New Orleans. Jack Ruby, who had been drifting around the station all weekend masquerading as a reporter, had pals in both the mob and Dallas police force. Were any of these organizations involved in the assassination of JFK or the subsequent murder of his alleged assassin? Now, in a poll taken after the assassination, a resounding majority of Americans believed someone else was involved in the crime. So in order to clear up the apparent confusion, the newly sworn-in President Lyndon Johnson formed the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy to present a report on the circumstances of the assassination. Now, Johnson wanted Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren to head up the commission, but Warren was reluctant to divide his times between two duties, as important as heading up the court and the commission. Now, uh, Johnson insisted that the good word of Earl Warren might be the only voice the country could trust, possibly last hope to avoid paranoia about the assassination plunging the world into a nuclear holocaust. <laughs> Johnson sure could have a way with words, didn't he, folks? Now, the president's hyperbole was apparently convincing because Warren relented and agreed to head up the investigation, and the president's commission would henceforth be commonly referred to as the Warren Commission. Now, the commission was initially lauded as an august jury of statesmen, but some of the most influential uh, members of the proceedings were of questionable moral caliber. Now, prominent commission member John McCloy had been infamous for various questionable acts over the years. He was instrumental to implementing the shameful internment of Japanese-American citizens, American citizens, during the Second World War, and helped convince President Franklin Roosevelt not to bomb the Auschwitz supply lines, which brought Jews to their death during the Holocaust. <laughs> and after the war, McCloy helped Nazi officer Klaus Barbie, the despicable butcher of Lyon, escape to South America. And Barbie was eventually, uh, eventually convicted of war crimes, but uh, that certainly did not stop Warren Commission member John McCloy from helping him out. Now, Commissioner Alan Dulles who dominated the proceedings in many ways, uh, participated in numerous illegal foreign coup d'etat as the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. He's responsible for turning America's intelligence apparatus into a international assassination ring, a legacy that the CIA lives with to this day. Who knows what those boys and girls are up to right now? Republican congressman and prominent commissioner member Gerald Ford was known to have supervised the commission proceedings while Earl Warren attended to his Supreme Court duties, is the only member of the President's Commission who ever became the Chief Executive of the United States himself when Richard Nixon resigned to avoid impeachment. Now, Ford's reputation will forever be tarnished by the shameful pardon he granted to Nixon after assuming the presidency. He also admitted to moving the location of President Kennedy's wounds 
on the documentation during the investigation for the sake of, quote, clarity, unquote. <laughs> oh, boy. So, the Warren Commission report concluded in the end that three shots were fired. All of them fired by Lee Harvey Oswald. The first shot hit the, or the first shot missed the limousine entirely. The second shot hit the president in the back and exited throat. Uh, hit Connolly in the back, exited his body, hit his wrist, and eventually his thigh. And uh, that bullet was found on a stretcher at Parkland Hospital, and was known as Commission Exhibit 399. The third and fatal shot hit Kennedy in the back of the head. Finally, Commission members firmly stated that Oswald had acted alone in the shooting, and there was no evidence of a conspiracy. Now, some found the theory that the second shot caused so many injuries highly suspect and began to regard it as the magic bullet. They also claimed that the bullet was too pristine to have caused as much damage as was purported to, but the bullet is actually warped from certain angles. We'll get to that later. Now, Commission member Hale Boggs wasn't satisfied with the theory and was in support of the commission releasing a de dissenting opinion. This is not something that's often discussed. But there was at least one member of the commission who was not entirely convinced by the commission's findings. Now, despite these concerns, the commission released their findings as conclusive. It was Oswald. Oswald acted alone. No conspiracy. End of story. Case closed. Okay. President Johnson he publicly accepted the commission's findings and lauded their efforts as comprehensive. But after leaving office... And this is captured on videotape, folks. Johnson admitted that he still had doubts about the conclusions of the commission he had formed and admitted he was still concerned about the possibility that some sort of international conspiracy was involved in the murder of President Kennedy. He said this in an interview, filmed. You can find it. It's on YouTube. It's crazy, folks. And here's the thing. Many ordinary citizens shared... President Lyndon Johnson's fears that there was international implications in the assassination of Chief Executive John Fitzgerald Kennedy. He continued to believe that the assassination may well have been the result of a conspiracy. While the results of the Warren Commission were accepted at face value by the mainstream news outlet, outlet numerous independent writers and investigators began expressing their doubts, criticism, and alternate theories. Now, at the behest of Lee Oswald's own mother, the eccentric and overbearing Marguerite Oswald, attorney Mark Lane took on the responsibility of acting as the accused assassin's sort of posthumous legal defense. And the defense of Lee Harvey Oswald's innocence became uh, Mr. Lane's life work in, in many ways. He also uh, was at Jonestown the night of the uh, Jonestown Massacre. Uh, you can hear some details about that on one of our previous episodes from the Inside Jobs archives on, uh, on Jonestown, also in this feed. Now, Lane captured, Mark Lane captured the public imagination with his controversial book and accompanying film, Rush to Judgment. Edward Epstein analyzed the flaws in the Warren Commission investigation with his 1966 book, Inquest. Josiah Thompson tried to blow a hole through the government's official version of the history of the assassination with his book, Six Seconds in Dallas. The greatest debate in American history had begun, folks, with many parties pointing their fingers at numerous suspects other than Oswald. Meanwhile, a secret investigation into the Kennedy murder was underway back in New Orleans. 
The results of this investigation would not only polarize Warren Commission supporters from critics, but also cause a crucial schism in the critical community itself that remains to this day. Now, the summer before the assassination, Lee Harvey Oswald had been rabble-rousing in his hometown of New Orleans, the notoriously outrageous Delta Port of Call. New Orleans had inherited a healthy population of displaced anti-Castro Cubans after the communists took Havana. And Oswald immediately became fascinated with all the communist intrigue they brought with them. When Oswald arrived in town, summer 63, he at first played friendly with the group of anti-Castro Cubans, but then he got in a fight with them for distributing pro-Castro flyers in the street. The flyers which read, Hands Off Cuba, incensed the publicity of the pub uh, public head of the group, Carlos Bernier, and they decided to go rustle Oswald up a bit on the street. So a, a brief altercation ensued. Oswald was arrested and fined $10 for this strange hands-off Cuba incident. And uh, afterwards, Oswald debated Bringier on, on a local radio broadcast. Now, most interestingly, some of the flyers that had been stamped with the New Orleans address, uh, 544 Camp Street, um, this was the address that uh, Oswald was apparently running this Fair Play for Cuba committee organization out of, out, of, uh, out of New Orleans. Incidentally, he's the only known member of this organization. So he's apparently running this uh, uh, Fair Play for Cuba committee out of 544 Camp Street. Now this is a unit in the same building as the office of Guy Bannister, who's former head of the Chicago FBI and perhaps the most virulent anti-communist in the entire Delta. So why was New Orleans' most notorious communist sharing walls with its biggest anti-communist. So there was another New Orleans anti-communist who was a known associate of Lee Oswald. He was a mysterious figure named David W. Ferry. Now, Ferry had tried to be a pilot and a priest, but he always sabotaged his own career with sexual scandals involving young men. And as a teenager, okay, Oswald had been under Ferry's command in what was called the Civil Air Patrol cap. Civil Air Patrol was kind of a ROTC sort of Boy Scouts, um, kind of Air Force situation. So, you know, young men would come in and they would get sort of training on, on you know, what, what it would be like to, to be in the Air Force. And uh, David Ferry was uh, was Oswald's commander when he, was, when he was a youth in this organization. Now, some say that Oswald was cavorting with Ferry in New Orleans during the summer of 63, but no photographs or documents had surfaced to confirm these allegations. But the day of the assassination, Ferry took an unplanned trip to Texas, where he apparently spent most of the day in an ice rink, a phone booth. And after Oswald was announced as the assassin, New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison decided to bring in Ferry for questioning. Okay. Um, whether Ferry was involved in the conspiracy or not, he certainly understood that being a pilot, who was a known associate of Lee Oswald, and took a trip to Dallas, uh, Texas, the day of the murder of the president, didn't look good. Garrison was suspicious and decided to hold Ferry for further questioning. And higher authorities, though, released Ferry and chastised Garrison for holding him as a suspect. Garrison, okay, you know, I'm gonna move on with my life. I got other things to do here. Now, in 1964, Warren Commission staff interviewed an eccentric New Orleans attorney named Dean Andrews, old law school pal Jim Garrison. Now, Andrews claims to have done some legal work for Lee Oswell in the summer of '63 charging him $15, $25 to change his Marine discharge to honorable. Uh, Oswald had to get out of the Marines early, supposedly to help his mother, uh, but then uh, ran off to Russia to marry a Russian bride. <laughs> uh, 
Andrew says that this little bit of work came to him through a man named Clay Bertrand, who he claims regularly sent him swarthy swishers who were in legal trouble for cross-dressing and other petty offenses related to the New Orleans homosexual underworld. Now, according to Andrews, Bertrand called himself, called him the day of the assassination and asked him to be Oswald's lawyer. <laughs> Andrews was sedated in the hospital at the time, allegedly, and allegedly told Bertrand that if he, that he couldn't represent Oswald himself, he could find someone to do it. Now, Oswald, meanwhile, was trying to get representation from a famous civil rights lawyer in New York, uh, turning down his brother uh, Robert Oswald's uh, offer to get uh, to get Lee a lawyer. So Andrew's description, Clay Bertrand, varied in the accounts he gave the FBI and the Warren Commission to the feds. Andrew said Bertrand was over six feet. To the commission, he said he was under six feet. But he couldn't really tell because Bertrand was sitting down. His description of Bertrand's hair and complexion varied wildly in the accounts of the FBI and the Warren staff as well. Commission staff member who questioned Dean Andrews seems to seemed incredulous of this story, pointing out the discrepancies in his descriptions of this, this Bertrand character. Andrew said he didn't think Oswald could have done the shooting and that he was determined to find Bertrand and the real shooter. Andrews claimed that the last time he saw Clay Bertrand, Bertrand had got up and ran away. The FBI initially questioned Andrews on the matter was unable to locate anyone by the name of Clay Bertrand. But evidence has arisen over the years to point out who Clay Bertrand really could have been. Although the mainstream press and the majority of government officials publicly supported the conclusions of the Warren Commission, the American people couldn't quell their suspicions that other groups or individuals must have been involved in the Kennedy assassination. Even several key public figures who had officially sided with the government's version of the case are reported to have privately expressed their doubts. A lot of people said, oh, well, if there was a conspiracy, then, you know, Bobby Kennedy, who was attorney general at the time, would have would have gone after him. Here's the thing. JFK's brother, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, believed the assassination was a retaliation from one of the Kennedy family's uh, many enemies. This was according to, to Bobby's aide, Edwin Guthman. Richard Nixon, his reference to the Bay of Pigs and the infamous Watergate tape is actually a veiled reference to his belief that there was a Cuban connection to the assassination, according to Nixon Chief of Staff H.R. Haldeman. Even President Lyndon Johnson, who we discussed above, the man who commissioned the Warren Report itself, told Walter Cronkite that he believed there may have been an international connection to the president's murder. So in 66, civil rights attorney Mark Lane published the book Rush to Judgment, which was the first mainstream publication challenging conclusions of the Warren Report. The book, which was also adapted into a documentary, as I mentioned, is essentially an attorney's brief offering a legal defense of Oswald, pointing out holes in the Warren Report. The book was a bestseller and established a cottage industry of challenging, of books that challenge the government's version of the assassination, which continues to be a lucrative business to this day, but not quite as lucrative as one would hope. <laughs> so the same year the Rush to Judgment was published, District Attorney of New Orleans, Jim Garrison, was beginning his investigation into Oswald's New Orleans connections. Now, eventually, Garrison became convinced the assassination was part of a broad-ranging conspiracy. In 69, he tried the only case in the Kennedy assassination. And the accused was New Orleans-based businessman Clay Shaw, whom Garrison alleged was a government agent who planned a conspiracy with Dave Ferry to assassinate the president. Also said that Clay Shaw was Clay Bertrand. Now, Garrison's case was plagued by public controversy, thanks to 
some inconsistent statements and allegations, and, and allegations of unethical methods of interrogation. And in the end, he was unable to get enough credible witnesses on the record to get enough concrete evidence linking Shaw to the crime and convincing people that Shaw was perjured. Shaw was acquitted of the crime and never managed to fully recover from the ordeal and died shortly after. But here's the thing. We don't really know what could have been with this, with this trial because it was so undermined by the mainstream media and the intelligence apparatus of the United States. Clearly, in the way that the witnesses were treated, in the way that Jim Garrison was treated, his office was bugged. They did everything they could to stop him. He had stumbled upon something. Now, the defense said, oh, oh Clay Shaw had nothing to do with the CIA. Had nothing to do with any of this. Of course, it was later revealed by the head of the CIA, Dick Helms, that Clay Shaw did, in fact, work with the FBI, or the CIA. Okay? So, take that as you will. So what exactly did Jim Garrison stumble on? Did he stumble on a conspiracy to kill Kennedy? Or did he stumble on uh, some folks who were connected to Oswald, like Dave Barry, who were also connected to the CIA's anti-Castro uh, intelligence apparatus in the, in the Caribbean, in the Delta, and then through that stumble on this guy, Clay Shaw? So, was the government trying to cover up an actual conspiracy, or were they just trying to cover up the fact that Jim Garrison clearly stumbled on what was going on down there in the Delta, which was business, CIA, guys like Ferry were working together, possibly with the Mafia, to try to whack the beard and get American business interests back into Cuba. This comes to the core of, of what, what's going on here with the case, which is that there was clearly a cover-up of something. What it was, I do not know. Was it just covering up what the government was doing in general in some of these areas, or were they covering up a massive conspiracy to kill the chief executive? Anyway, Shaw was acquitted of the crime. And the major achievement of this investigation was that they managed to subpoena the Zabruder film, which we'll talk about later, of the assassination. It was a film of the assassination captured by Abraham Zabruder on a Bell and Howe camera that he sold to Time Life. And it would eventually figure prominently into many subsequent conspiracy theories. Garrison and his investigation remain controversial to this day, even among conspiracy theorists. There's a sort of, even within the conspiracy theory camp, there's some who say, oh, there was a conspiracy, but gosh, this Garrison guy did so much to harm our case. And there's some who are like, no, 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 no. Garrison was on to them. Garrison almost got there, but he was, he was stymied. So that, that's the thing. There's no, there's no just sort of unilateral universal stance of all people who think that there was a, a, a conspiracy to, to kill Kennedy. Within the faction of conspiracy uh, advocates, there are sub-factions and sub-factions within. Everyone's still trying to sort out, was Garrison a crackpot who staged an arbitrary vendetta against an innocent man, or was his investigation sabotaged by the media and the intelligence community? So Garrison himself has become this sort of symbol of those who challenge the Warren 
report's conclusions, and he, and he served as the inspiration for Oliver Stone's 1991 film, JFK. So in the late 60s, young photographic technician Robert Grodin, uh, who would turn 18 years old the day of the assassination, was working on a contract with Time Life and managed to make a copy of the Zabruder film. Now, Bob Grodin became convinced that the back and the left motion of the president's head after the kill shot proved that the gunshot came from the front and could not have been fired by Oswald. Now, Grodin screened the film on Geraldo Rivera's late-night talk show in 1975, and Bob convinced many of the viewers of his theories. And Bob remains a, a key figure in the conspiracy movement, especially the photographic record of the event. He's authored several amazing books on the subject. So whether or not you agree that the Zabruder film uh, was um, proof that there was a conspiracy or not, um, Bob Grodin's work cannot be understated. He's clearly the premier expert of his generation on the photographic record of the assassination. And uh, if you want a comprehensive... Uh, collection of the most important fact uh, photographs related to the case whether you agree with Bob or not his books are uh, are excellent uh, would be excellent additions to your your collection he actually is <clears throat> appears in the in the movie JFK he's the appears a couple times I think he's in the <laughs> autopsy scene as one of the doctors but then he's also the guy who is the uh, projector uh, operator, which is which is interesting. The guy who eventually got us the Zubrier film is the guy showing the, the film in the film. Very meta, right? Anyway, the church committee. This is huge. Church committee is is huge, not to our understand, not just our understanding of, of JFK, of MLK, of RFK, all these assassinations, but it's essential to understanding the way that our intelligence apparatus of our country, the United States, was operating during the Cold War. So in 1975, a Senate Select Committee led by uh, Senator Frank Church shocked the nation when this committee exposed that the United States Intelligence Committee was involved in the assassinations of several world leaders, including Patrice Lumumba of the Congo, the Diem brothers in Vietnam. And these incendiary discoveries reawakened the nation's suspicions that there was more to the assassinations of JFK, RFK, and MLK than the government's official story that each of these key leaders in the 1960s had been murdered by lone nuts. The government was involved in the other assassination and the assassination of other world leaders. Could the attacks against our own public figures be a retaliation against these abuses of power? Even worse, was the government itself, was our government itself involved in these assassinations? And this, of course, led to the founding of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. This growing public unrest regarding these concerns led to the formation of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, HSCA which was charged with the investigating with investigating possible conspiracies regarding JFK, RFK, and MLK assassinations. The committee reevaluated the evidence from the case and explored several of the loose ends open, uh, left open by the Warren Report. By no means all of them. HSCA tried a little harder than, than, than the Warren Commission, but was stymied in their own ways and left uh, almost as many, uh, almost as many uh, loose ends as they closed. And up until the end of the investigation, the HSCA generally agreed with the conclusions of the initial investigation, the Warren Report. But just before their conclusions were to be announced, newly discovered audio evidence led them to believe that there had been additional shots from the grassy knoll and there was probably a conspiracy. However, the validity of this evidence has been challenged by several credible sources. And the committee requested that additional resources be allocated to the investigation of the assassination. With that request, was never filled. 
<laughs> so, basically, uh, this committee was formed to try to get to the bottom of the Kennedy assassination. What they eventually found was, yeah, there was probably a conspiracy. We should look into it more. <laughs> and uh, we didn't look into it more. At least not till the 90s. So, public opinion that Kennedy was killed by conspiracy had been steadily climbing since the late 60s, and it reached a fever pitch by the end of the investigation. So according to a Gallup poll at the time of the assassination, 52% of Americans believed that JFK was killed by conspiracy. This number dipped slightly by the time the Warren Report was released, but by the end of the House Select Committee investigation, a staggering 81% of Americans believed that the conspiracy that a conspiracy was involved in the assassination. Now, throughout the 80s, a steady stream of conspiracy-related books on the assassination, including Dave Lipton's best-selling volume on the medical evidence, Best Evidence, Anthony Summers' Conspiracy, and Jim Marr's Crossfire, continued to fuel speculation that a conspiracy was involved in the assassination. And in 1988, Nigel Turner's documentary, The Men Who Killed Kennedy, brought many of the theories espoused by these and other authors to a more mainstream television audience. And the Kennedy assassination conspiracy theories gained even more prominence um, with the release of Oliver Stone's JFK in 1991. And it, like I said before, it uses the story of the Garrison investigation to showcase pretty much all of the major conspiracy theories that have been developed over the years. <clears throat> and JFK also reignited the controversy over the Garrison case, and many news outlets attempted to discredit Oliver Stone's, quote, counter-myth, unquote, of the assassination in the same way that they tried to discredit Garrison to begin with. And so it indoctrinated a new generation, like myself, of Americans born uh, after the assassination into conspiracy lore and dominated the public's perception of the case for years to come. And this led to the ARRB, Assassinations Record and Review Board. This public outrage over the film's revelations that many government files related to the assassination would remain locked for decades to come prompted Congress to pass the President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act of 92. Assassination Records Review Board, ARRB, was formed to facilitate the release of all government files with, the, with information on the assassination. So. Although the board had no investigative mandate or authority and no smoking guns, okay, and this is a term we always do, quote, smoking guns, unquote, were revealed during its existence, many people contend that the documents support uh, the conclusions of conspiratorial um, allegations regarding the assassination. Because that's the thing, is HSCA said, hey, we got to get some more money to, to, um, to research this. Nothing happened until 91 when Stone's movie came out. They finally get some money to, to go back to the case. But the board couldn't investigate. They, all they could do was find documents and get them out to the public. Of course, they didn't get out all of them. We're still waiting on some of those. But they couldn't actually investigate them. Uh, luckily, there was a guy named uh, Doug, Douglas Horn, who is a uh, ARRB senior analyst, who's been doing some investigative uh, work um, in written like just a multi multi-volume um, tome series of tomes on on the work of ARB 
And uh, he reports he found evidence that there was a cover-up related to the president's autopsy and challenged the official story. So here's the thing. All of these documents have been released since ARB. And recently in the past couple of years under the Trump administration, a few more have been released, a bunch more have been released. And... Um, the story hasn't really changed on both sides. And there's a lot of evidence that needs to be evaluated. And there's very few people who are actually looking into it. The mainstream press, uh, you know, whenever there's a new document dumped, they'll tease out a couple things. And, and some of the most uh, interesting stuff is um, related to Oswald in Mexico. But with the last document dumps, um, the main thing that was pointed out is that the government knew who Oswald was before the assassination. CIA knew who he was. They knew who this guy was. And they covered it up. And I remember <clears throat> after these docs came out, people coming up and oh, Lee, isn't it crazy that, isn't it crazy that they just, you know, they just realized that there was like a cover-up of I've been talking about this for years. People have been talking about it for years since I was before I was born. But yeah, now it's in the Huffington Post, so people believe it. Okay, whatever. Anyway, when I was growing up, popularity of shows like The X-Files and preponderance of conspiracy-related cable programs fueled distrust of the American government and provided a fertile ground for continuing the spread of JFK conspiracy theories throughout the rest of the 1990s. By the end of the decade, the percentage of Americans who believed that there was a conspiracy behind the murder once again reached a high of 81%. Now, the tragic events of September 11, 2001, traumatized the American psyche in much the same way as the Kennedy assassination had almost 40 years before. And a movement of so-called truthers began to challenge the official government story of the attacks on the World Trade Center and prompted a renaissance of conspiracy theory in the United States. With each passing anniversary of the assassination, a new batch of documentaries, TV specials, and books emerges to challenge the conclusions of the Warren Commission and its supporters. Most significantly, YouTube, podcasts, blogs, social media have provided the modern JFK research community an open platform to promote or disprove theories regarding the assassination. A number of sites have emerged promising definitive information that solves the case. YouTube has made the photographic record of the assassination available to anyone, and hundreds of videos have been uploaded espousing or debunking a wide range of theories. While the debate over the assassination often devolves into petty rivalries and ad hominem attacks in the research community that has emerged on Facebook, which has connected those interested in the Kennedy assassination to various authors, experts, and even eyewitnesses around the world. And in 2013, Nation commemorated the 50th anniversary of the assassination of President JFK with a media frenzy of documentaries, film, books, magazines, news reports. On and although public opinion has shifted now, only 61% or so of Americans believe there was a conspiracy to kill the president. It is evident this tragic event continued to dominate the public imagination for another 50 years and beyond. Meanwhile, the American people are still waiting for that smoking gun will reveal once and for all who really killed our president. And until then, the mystery endures. From deep 
within the Inside Jobs archives. Here at Handsome Headquarters, I'm Lee Sanger-Golden, and you're listening to me talk on the internet.